What do you think when you hear the name Judas? The lowest of the low, an evil, rotten, no good, very bad scumbag. So bad that he belongs in a place with those who we would consider completely evil. People like the Roman Emperor Caligula, or Hitler, or Jeffrey Dahmer. If that's so, you're not alone. In Dante's Inferno, the Italian poet describes hell as consisting of nine concentric circles, each progressively worse. And in the ninth and most innermost of those circles, the center of that circle is Judas, the man who betrayed Jesus. So is Dante right? Is Judas the greatest of all sinners? It might surprise you that I don't think I agree with that assessment. In fact, I would say that we, maybe let me rephrase that, that I have more in common with Judas than I care to admit. Now, as unsettling as that may be, I believe that there is just at least a little bit of Judas in each one of us. That's because rather than extraordinarily bad, Judas is surprisingly ordinary. The question then is how can we keep from ending up like Judas did. I want to remind you of what Judas is all about. Here's some of the facts that we know about him. First of all, Jesus chose him. Jesus once spent an entire evening praying about who he would ask to be on his team of 12, who would spend what would be three years with him. And he chose Judas. Judas was, and there's no reason to believe otherwise, a sincere follower of Jesus at least at the beginning. Judas was there for all of the important moments in Jesus' life, at every press conference, every healing, every cast-out demon, and every amazing miracle. He saw him up close and personal every day of his life. He saw his power, he heard his wise words, and he experienced personally the way that Jesus cared for people who were hurting, discouraged, and confused. And Jesus trusted him. Perhaps because he was good with money or he was especially trustworthy, but Jesus selected him as the group's treasurer and entrusted him to manage their finances. But along the way, something went wrong. And in the end, he turned on Jesus and in an act of sheer treachery, gave him up to the religious authorities knowing that it was their intention to take his life. But that's getting ahead of the story. So let's start at least at the part when things start to unravel. At the beginning of Mark chapter 14, the story begins with an ominous note. It says that the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not, they said, during the festival, or the people may riot. So what we know here is that the authorities want to get rid of Jesus. Now, they know they can't arrest him in a public place. He's just simply too popular. So they're looking for a way to grab him in secret. But Jesus is a bit of a slippery guy, and they don't know where to find him. It's then in the story, a story that we looked at a few weeks ago, that a woman came and took some very expensive perfume worth tens of thousands of dollars and poured it on Jesus' head. Judas, we're told, was outraged. What a waste, he said. Couldn't you at least have converted it into cash and then been able to spend the money on the poor? But Jesus saw things differently. He rebuked Judas and he praised the woman and that made Judas angry. And for some reason, this was the last straw. 
Because Judas left that gathering, went to the religious authorities offering to use his insider status and his intimate knowledge of Jesus' whereabouts and to help them arrest Jesus. Now, he wanted a finder's fee, and they quickly agreed on a price, and Judas began to look for an opportunity. A couple of days later, on Thursday of that Holy Week, the first day of the Passover, Jesus invited his disciples, including Jesus, to celebrate the Passover meal. John says this about that gathering. He says that Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and go to his Father. Then John adds this, having loved his own who were in the world, Jesus loved them to the end. Now, Jesus loved them to the end, knowing that Judas had already decided to turn against him. So Jesus is deeply disappointed, and yet John wants us to know that he loved Judas to the end. Now, everyone else arrived for the meal, and Jesus wrapped a towel around his waist. He poured water into a basin, and he went from one to the other and washed their feet. He made his way around the room, and eventually he came to Judas. Yes, Judas. I imagine that as Jesus washed Judas' feet, he looked into his eyes with love. And Judas, knowing what he was about to do, must have looked away. When Jesus finished, John tells us that Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. Now Judas must have instantly been on edge. Did Jesus know that it was him? But he wasn't the only one who was rattled. Mark tells us that all the disciples were sad, and one by one they asked Jesus, surely it's not I. Now, I've read those words dozens of times, but never really understood what was going on here. Because think about it. Judas has already made the decision to betray Jesus. The rest of them are completely clean. So why were they so concerned? Now, normally, the disciples are not a sort of folks to admit weakness. In fact, just a few moments before then, Jesus had predicted that Peter would deny him three times. And Peter was offended. No, I won't. I'll die with you. I will never let you down. So why did they ask Jesus, is it I? Because they all knew that they were capable of doing what Judas would eventually do. They knew something was up. They knew that the pressure was building, and they wondered if when the time came, they would crack. When you think about it, it's actually fairly easy to see why they had their doubts. In the same circumstances today, we would have our doubts. Is it me? That's because there's just a little bit of Judas in each one of us, and that's why they asked. Now, even Judas asked Jesus, although his reasons for asking were disingenuous. It wasn't an honest question. He just didn't want to give himself away. And he also wondered if Jesus already knew. Jesus didn't answer the others. Instead, he said, it is the one who dips bread in the bowl with me. Then he took a piece of bread, he dipped it in the bowl, and he handed it to Judas. Looking him in the eye, he said, what you are about to do, do quickly. Now, on the surface, it looks like Jesus is calling Judas out. But this is actually a gesture of friendship in that culture, extending this this piece of bread. Jesus was reaching out to Judas one final time in order to bring him back. So what Jesus is doing there is doing what John wrote about, that he loved them to the end. Now, surprising as it might seem, at that moment, Judas could have asked Jesus for a moment alone. 
He could have said, listen, I've stolen some money from the money bag. I've gone to the authorities and I've made a deal to hand you over. He could have asked for mercy and Jesus would have forgiven him, but he didn't. Now, the others didn't really understand what's going on. Soon after, Judas slipped out of the room, leaving the rest behind and cutting himself off from them and from Jesus. They just thought he was going out to buy something. And then John adds this comment. He says, and it was night. Now, that's literally true, but there's some figurative meaning in what John says there because what Judas did when he walked out the door was enter into a place of spiritual darkness. From that point on, his life and his actions were controlled by Satan. Not long after, Jesus and the remaining 11 disciples made their way down the Kidron Valley and up to the Garden of Gethsemane. And it was there that Jesus spent an extended time in prayer. And as they finished and began to leave the garden, they were met by a group of soldiers who were led by Judas at the front, waiting to identify Jesus. But Jesus wasn't exactly hiding. Who do you want, he says to all those who were there, the soldiers. Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He said, I'm he. And then just so it was clear that someone hadn't stepped in, jumped in to take Jesus' place, Judas steps forward. He embraces Jesus and said, Rabbi, and kisses him on the cheek. Luke lets us know that Jesus asked him, do you really want to do this? And Matthew adds that Jesus called him friend. So do you see the way that Jesus is continuing to reach out to Judas? It's interesting that even the signal that Judas agreed upon, that that kiss, wasn't necessary because Jesus gave himself willingly up. And up to the end, he lets Judas know that he would still be there to forgive him. So why is it that Judas turned on Jesus? Well, we don't know for sure, but let me give you a few possible reasons that are suggested by the text that we have about Judas in the Bible. The first is one that John mentions in his biography of Jesus, and that's money, or more precisely, greed. We know that Judas lied to Jesus about his concern for the poor, and we know that he'd been stealing money from the money bag. And so what seems very possible is that Judas loved money and the things that money could buy. And that was part of the reason that he abandoned Jesus. But even more, I think, is that Judas was personally ambitious. He wanted to hitch himself to a winner. And early on, when it looked like Jesus was going places, he was all in. But Jesus kept talking about things like serving others, not running things. And over time, Judas became more and more impatient. And the kicker came when Jesus refused to play along with the nationalistic aspirations of the people. When Judas realized that Jesus did not intend to make Israel great again, he lost respect for him. Judas, like many of the others, had expected the Messiah to take things over. So when Jesus didn't run for high priest or raise an army to drive out the Romans or toss out the bums who were running the temple, Judas turned on him. You see, Jesus or Judas saw Jesus as a cause, not as Messiah. He had an image of who Jesus could be, and when he didn't conform, he tossed him to the side. Jesus invited Judas to follow him. He offered him the abundant life he promises anyone who chooses to follow him. For three years, Jesus included him in everything. He prayed for him, he taught him, he trusted him, even washed his feet and called him friend. All he asked in return was that Judas opened his heart to God. 
Judas said no. We have to be careful that we do not do the same thing. Whenever we look to Jesus to endorse our agenda, he's no longer our Lord. When we try to use him for our own selfish purposes, we have an idol, not a God. Unfortunately, we do this all the time. Those on the right and the left try to use Jesus to support their cause. And it's too easy to quote Jesus selectively, to present at best a half-truth, a distortion of the message that Jesus came to bring, and ignore some of the other things that we just simply don't like. Even more than about politics, it's about us, about our personal lives. We all have expectations for what God will be doing in our lives. I do and you do. As long as things are going well, great, we're all in. But when following Jesus starts to cost us something, we wonder if we've made a mistake. I've had times in my life when I think, hey, God, I've followed all the rules. I've done all the right things. I've prayed all the right prayers. So when are you going to come through for me? The truth is, is that we often demand things from God that he never demanded or that he never promised. And we ignore Jesus' call to sacrifice and inconvenience. We even reject the greater gifts he offers because we think we know best. Judas wanted a Messiah who would defeat his enemies, who would make everyone rich and heal what ailed them and solve all their problems. And when that didn't happen the way that he thought it should, he turned on Jesus. He became someone the devil could use for his purposes. It's a really serious thing. Now, there's one misconception about Judas that I need to clear up, and that is that he was bad from the beginning. As we already noted, in the beginning, Judas was all in. He was just as committed as any of the others. But somewhere along the way, something changed. This means that Judas didn't start out the way that he ended up. At one point, he was on board with what Jesus was doing. But over time, things changed, and he went from being an intimate friend to a betrayer. That's why even when Jesus publicly identified Judas as the one who betrayed him, the disciples didn't believe him. They just didn't see it coming. That's because Judas' decision to betray Jesus didn't happen all at once. It was a gradual thing. And it was never, at least up until the end, inevitable. He had numerous opportunities to turn back to Jesus. But in the end, he made what at one point would have seemed like a seemingly incomprehensible decision. He made the decision to betray Jesus and turn him over to the authorities, knowing that they intended to have Jesus killed. But by the time he met with the authorities, he'd already shifted his, allegiances, his allegiance from Jesus to Satan. That's why Jesus calls Judas a devil, because in the end, Judas had joined the opposition. Now, all that raises an important question, and that is, did Judas have a choice? Could he have resisted the devil, or was it inevitable that he would give in? And I'll tell you that I believe Judas had a choice. In fact, he had a series of choices. But what he did gradually at first was made choices that opened the door to Satan's influence in his life. Satan can only influence us if we give him a foothold. He can't overpower us on our own. But if we open the door, he will come in, and the next thing we know, he's had his way with us. Does that mean that the devil can do the same thing to you? Well, I think the answer is yes and no. 
If you turn back your back on God, if you abandon the way of life that Jesus has offered or asks us to live, if you hold on to sin and tell God to stay out of your life, then yes, the same thing can happen to you. But it isn't inevitable. If you stay close to Jesus, Satan can't get at you. That's why James wrote in James chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, he says, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. So know this. God is not one to let go of you easily. God honors even our half-hearted attempts to follow him. So don't be frightened. You're not about to head off into the deep end. And yet be careful. If you lose your love for God, if you routinely disobey him, Satan will find a way in. Many of you know that Judas had a tragic end. After he was sentenced to die, it says that Judas was seized with remorse. Impulsively, he decided to return the money. He went back to the authorities who sort of laughed him off. Maybe he thought he could absolve himself of responsibility. They didn't even want the money back. So he scattered the coins across the temple floor and then went and hanged himself. Now, this part of Judas' story can be very confusing. In fact, some have misused this story by saying that those who die by suicide will not go to heaven, and it is simply not true. Judas' circumstances are unique. Suicide's tragic. It's very sad when someone becomes desperate enough to believe that death is the answer. We need to do all we can to support those who struggle with thoughts of harming themselves. But suicide is not a reason that God will exclude anyone from spending an eternity with Him. Second, it says that Judas was seized with remorse. So does that mean that in the end, Judas repented? I think what Judas expresses here is more regret than repentance. It's a bit like the politician who says, hey, I'm sorry that I got caught with my hand in the cookie jar. What he means is that he's sorry, not for what he's done, but for getting caught. True repentance is a deep sadness at having let God and others down. That said, I do not believe that Judas truly repented. Or if he had, Jesus would have forgiven him. So here's an out-of-the-box idea. What if Judas had waited? Waited just three days. Waited until Sunday. Now hear me out. On Saturday, Jesus lay in the tomb. The disciples had, in fear, hidden behind a locked door. Peter was racked with guilt over the way that he'd failed Jesus. Thomas was plagued by doubts, had just about given up on him. And then on Sunday, Jesus appeared. Once clearly dead, now clearly alive. Once their hopes and dreams were dashed, now they found that he was suddenly with them in their presence saying, peace be with you. And then over the next days and weeks, Jesus graciously restored each and every one of them, addressing the need they had either for forgiveness or addressing their doubts. So by the time Sunday came, though, Judas is already gone. What if he had waited just three days? Judas was not a victim, and he was not a pawn. He knew what he was doing. He could have made a different set of choices. Judas is the one that betrayed Jesus, but Jesus had lots of enemies. There were dozens of others who would gladly have been willing to turn him in. We are never, though, doomed by our past choices. 
Just as Judas could have repented right up to the very end, so can we. In fact, the reason that Jesus died is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the message of the cross, that we can have hope even when we are tempted to despair. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you. And we would ask that you would keep our hearts soft. Guide us and alert us to the times that we begin to drift away from you. Lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. And when we sin, may we remember that you are always there waiting with open arms to welcome us back and forgive us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.